Well, good morning. Let us uh, open our Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And this morning we're considering verse 14. We're almost to the end of our series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, it's been uh, quite an exercise for me uh, to learn what it means to preach through the Ten Commandments. So uh, hopefully it's been uh, profitable and a blessing to us. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. That didn't take very long, huh? Can we read it again? You shall not commit adultery. A few sins have exercised more power over humanity and have caused more sorrow and proven more destructive to humanity than sins related to human sexuality. It is the greatest plague of our day. In the same light, let me make the following statement. I hope this is very, very clear to you. Nothing sets you apart in this world more clearly as a child of God adopted through Jesus Christ than a life of sexual purity. I'm going to repeat that again. Nothing sets you apart in this world more clearly as a child of God adopted through Jesus Christ than a life of sexual purity. This much is true. Thus, the relevancy of the seventh commandment cannot be overestimated. But before we dive in and look into this commandment more closely, I see the need, as always, to remind you of an ever-present principle attached to these commandments, one which we can't afford to ignore. What is that principle? It is the principle of love. It is the principle of love. Whether we are studying the fifth commandment concerning our honor to parents or the sixth commandment concerning issues of murder and anger or any other commandment, we are always confronted with the same question and the issue of love. To study any of these commandments, any of them apart from seeing them through the lenses of gospel love is not only futile, but is even dangerous. It is dangerous. What is love? Well, love is, as David Wells called it, the soul of sanctification. The soul of sanctification. If we would only understand that little, little expression, that little sentence... That sanctification has nothing to do with legalism. That love is actually the soul of sanctification. And then David Wells makes this, this statement, and I quote, The motivation of love to God and to neighbor is what gives the reason for and the weight to all our obedience. The keeping of the law loses its vitality, indeed its soul, if that keeping is not initiated sustained and directed by love, end quote. And then he adds this, and I quote, love grows in the soil of obedience, in the soil of obedience, end quote. In other words, 
Obedience to God's commandments is never to be separated or divorced from love in Christ and by the Spirit. It is love what keeps us from both legalism and antinomianism. Now, the seventh commandment concerning adultery is certainly no exception to this rule. The seventh commandment is also about love. Therefore, love will be the backbone of our considerations this morning as we think of the seventh commandment. So, first things first, let us begin with the basics. This is going to be obvious to many of you. Let's begin with the definition of adultery. The definition of adultery. In the strict sense of the word, adultery is the violation of a relationship through physical or spiritual unfaithfulness. All right? Adultery is the violation of a relationship through physical or spiritual and or spiritual unfaithfulness. So at the heart of our definition and understanding of adultery, we must include the word unfaithfulness. Embedded in the sin of adultery, then, is the idea that the people involved in it are already in a form of covenant relationship, namely and specifically marriage. And this can be either both people or just one of them. So, for instance, the single man, the single man who gets involved with a married woman is committing adultery. Why? Because he is violating someone else's covenant relationship. But as with every commandment, there is so much more. So let me make this very, very clear and as simple as I can. The sin of adultery, as presented in the seventh commandment, forbids all forms, all forms of sexual immorality, sexual immorality, fornication included. All forms of sexual immorality are included in this commandment. As with all the Ten Commandments, the seventh has a very broad implication for human sexuality and human faithfulness. So that is the definition. We're going to keep it simple. Let's move on to the origin of adultery. The origin of adultery. Why do we need this commandment? And where, where did it come from? Consider this. The embracing of any sin. The embracing of any sin, sexual or otherwise. The embracing of any sin always presupposes the forsaking of God. The embracing of any sin always presupposes the forsaking of God. In other words, God must be abandoned first in order for sin to become a delight. The great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, took it even deeper. At the heart of Edwards' understanding of original sin, what happened in the Garden of Eden, was what he called, and I quote, inordinate self-love. Inordinate self-love. In Edwards' conception of sin, self-love was not evil before the fall. That is interesting. Self-love was not evil before the fall because self-love was by then controlled by and subservient to the love for God and it encompassed all of creation. Therefore, before the fall, the self-love that Adam and Eve had was within the confines of that which is good and proper. But then the fall took place. And after the fall, 
self-love, self-love became evil. Why? Due to the fact that God stopped being the ultimate referent of love. Thus, self-love became inordinate. What Edwards calls self-love, we can call spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. The origin of any form of adultery is then the inner self, which is now unfettered from God. Due to sin, the inner self is no longer bound to God as the ultimate good. And this spiritual adultery, this forsaking of God for the self is the root cause of every other type of adultery. This is why the Bible uses language of adultery to refer to Israel's what? Ongoing forsaking of God for other gods. The entire book of Hosea uses the analogy of God as the husband and Israel as the unfaithful wife who committed adultery against the Lord by running after the gods of other nations. In in fact, in the book of Hosea, the entire nation of Israel is referred to as a prostitute. In fact, the word is whore. The nation of Israel is whoring after other gods. And you can read that by yourself in Hosea chapter two, verse two. And this is also, please don't miss this point. Follow along. This is also why it is quite terrifying when the Bible speaks of sexual sin. For normally when it does, sexual sins are presented as symptomatic, as symptomatic of the forsaking of God. Did you get that? Sexual sins are normally presented in the Bible as symptomatic of the forsaking of God. Every and any type of sexual deviation, including adultery, are manifestations of that inordinate love of which Edward spoke. Now, the quintessential example of this is, of course, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is where the, the point is proven because we see, listen to this, that God gives people over. He lets them get what they want. He turns them over to their sexual sins in response to, in response to people's forsaking God for other things. And this is only confirmed and illustrated by our Lord Jesus, who in Matthew chapter five, verses 27 through 30 said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adultery originated in the garden of Eden when self love became inordinate. And now self love rules man. Self love rules rules man. So with that in mind, let us go to the third point, which is the dangers, the dangers of adultery, the dangers of adultery. And I'm trying to make this as as practical as I can. The first danger is, is this self destruction, self destruction. 
Consider the words of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. It doesn't get any clearer than this. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He who does it destroys himself. The word for sense, he who lacks sense, is a very interesting word. It can be a reference to the inner man, the mind, the heart, or even the soul. The concordance even pointed out that this word, the word sense, can be used to refer to the seat of appetites and the seat of emotions and passions. The other word that is interesting in that, in that proverb is the word destroy. Can also be translated as to corrupt, to go to ruin, decay, or to rotten. Now, when you take those together, it is clear that Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 talks about adultery as a sin that comes out of or is the result of a disordered inner life with devastating consequences. And it includes all of it your thoughts, your affections, your appetites, your emotions, your passions, all of it is in a chaotic state. And once the sin of adultery has been embraced, it only leads to greater and greater decay. I cannot think, I cannot think of too many other vices in the world that show the self-destructing power of sin as the sin of adultery or really any other sexual sin. It truly traps people in its powerful courts. I still remember counseling with a couple who was in desperate need of reconciliation and restoration. The husband had been caught in the act of adultery. And by the time they came to me, the wife was reaching a point of desperation and hopelessness. The man was being enticed by a younger woman and he became actively involved with this woman. We had several counseling meetings over many months but I still remember the very last one we had, the very last meeting we had. By this point, the man had not listened to anything I had said, although he never disagreed with me. He was always respectful, but he never showed signs of true repentance. Their marriage was in deplorable conditions. Our last meeting took place at our house in California. I still remember it. My wife was there. And the four of us sat down in our living room to have what we all knew would be our last attempt to save that marriage. At this point, I also knew that I couldn't waste any of my words. Now, this entire time, the man claimed to be a Christian. So I opened my Bible to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you to do the same. Proverbs chapter 5. It was the first chapter that came to mind. And what I thought to myself is this man needs to hear a final and sober warning. Don't miss the weightiness these verses have and the clarity with which they speak. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. My son, and this is what I read to him. I opened the Bible and I said, listen to these words. My son, be attentive to my wisdom Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Verse 3, 
For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So I read that, and I read much more. I'm going to keep it short for the sake of time. But this is what I read to him. To make long story short, and I want you to see the danger of sexual sin. By the time we had that last meeting, the man had already started walking down the path of self-destruction. He was already in it. After that meeting, he fully, fully embraced the other woman and left his wife. He self-destructed. He self-destructed. Even though there is always hope, sexual sins have a sort of definitive nature to them. You need to be very careful. They have a, a type of definitive nature to them. Those who go down the path of immorality allow themselves to enter a very, very dangerous territory from which many never come out. It truly is a path to self-destruction. This is why I believe that what is taking place in the society right now is satanic. Let me tell you why. The best way to destroy a society from within, from within, is by promoting sexual autonomy and deviancy. There's no question in my mind. If you can convince enough people in society that they can be whatever they want, sexually speaking, then you are forging a path to self-destruction. Based on this alone, I can boldly say that those who promote sexual deviancy of any kind are the true haters of a nation and the architects of its destruction. If this nation falls, it's going to be primarily because of the promotion of sexual sin and immorality. Make no mistake about it. What we're living right now is the consequences, the symptoms of this reality. What is the second danger of adultery or sexual sin in general? Well, eternal death. Eternal death. I want you to be very careful, very aware of what I'm about to say. Those who embrace adultery and sexual sins in general and never repent of it need to understand that according to the Bible, not according to me, according to the Bible, they are on their way to eternal damnation in hell. Even if you're a member of a church, even if you're a member of a church, I hope you understand that membership in a church does not save anyone. Only Christ does consider the words of, Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know, says Paul. Do you not know? It's, it's almost like he's saying, here's a really obvious thing to know. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And by the way, a lot of that deception comes from ourselves. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Continuing with the same line of thought that I gave you just a few moments ago, I had to say the following. If you and I are convinced of the biblical truth regarding sexual immorality and its devastating and eternal consequences and severe dangers, then the most hateful thing we could ever do to those engaged in sexual sin is to let them be happy and empowered in their sin. In a very interesting and real reversal And if you're a Christian, then you have to understand that all that talk about tolerance, all that language and that narrative about tolerance for the LGBTQ plus people is really and truly hatred disguised as love. The same goes for those engaged in unrepentant adultery and fornication. But listen to these words also coming from Paul. Same verse after explaining that sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on to say some of the most magnificent and glorious words you could ever read. First Corinthians six eleven, And such were. Is that present tense, future tense or past tense? That's past tense. And such were. Some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh, my friend, I want to simply echo the words of our Lord Jesus that he spoke to dead Lazarus. And I won't say this on my own authority, I say this upon the authority of Jesus himself today. If you are engaged in sexual immorality, then the Lord Jesus himself tells you to come out of the tomb. Come out. Repent of your sin. Come to the light. Come to the Lord Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. Make no mistake about it. And the only reason I can tell you this is because of love, right? Make no mistake about it, sexual, unrepentant, unrepentant sexual sin will lead you to hell. So today, repent. Christ will wash you, he will cleanse you, and he will give you eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. Now let's consider the path to adultery. Let's go a little deeper into how we come to this place of adultery. What happened? What must happen in someone's life that we get to this point? First, there has to be an unexamined life, an unexamined life. Consider how the book of Proverbs chapter five, verse six describes the adulterous woman. Listen to how Proverbs describes. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wonder, and she does not know it. Did you get that? What is it that she doesn't do? She does not ponder the path of life. The word ponder is such a critical word for the Christian life. Who would have thought in the original Hebrew, the word is palak. 
And it has the sense of weighing something, weighing it something, the weight, or to put something on a balance. Therefore, to ponder the path of life is to live with the awareness that all your actions are leading you either to holiness or wickedness. Do you understand that? All your actions, all your actions are either leading you to holiness or wickedness. To ponder the path of life is to live consistently with the fact that what we do with the time allotted to us is highly, highly consequential. In other words, to ponder the path of life is to live knowing that there is no neutral path. There is no neutral path. But that everything we do in this life will either take us to or away from who? Christ. That is to ponder the path of life. It's to realize that there is no neutrality. You're either getting closer to him or away from him. But you can be somewhere in between. According to Proverbs chapter 5 verse 6, there is a direct connection between the adulterous woman and the fact that she does not ponder the path of life. She does not weigh her actions. And because of that, she's like a boat, a boat without an anchor that simply goes wherever the waves will carry it. What is the opposite? Well, the opposite of this is to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of what? The time. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. To ponder the path, the path of life is to walk carefully because every step counts. Every step counts and it is leading you somewhere. So let me put it this way. More often than not, adultery or blatant sexual sin happens as a result of an accumulation of moments that were not thought through. This is what the Bible is teaching. I'll say more about that later on. I forgot that I was going to, but it's in my notes. So I'm guessing I will. <laughs> the second path to sexual sin, misuse of discipline, misuse of discipline. This is very important, especially for our young people. Consider what it says in Proverbs 5 verses 11 and 12. It says at the end and at the end of your life, you groan. This is assuming the person has engaged in immorality. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Notice that the man in question did not necessarily lack discipline and reproof. He simply hated them. Let me ask our younger people here or watching from home. What is your attitude toward the discipline and reproof of your parents. I want to make a very serious point here because it is interesting. Your attitude toward proper discipline and reproof can be a determining factor in the future health of your sexuality. Isn't that amazing? What you do 
with the discipline that your parents give you and the reproof and the correction, what you do with that today can determine your future sexuality and the health of your sexuality in the future. So children, honor your parents. If they discipline and reprove you now, consider that to be God's grace upon you for the sake of your own sexual purity tomorrow. And third, the third path to immorality is resistance to instruction. Consider verse 13 of Proverbs 5. What, did, what does the man say? I did not listen to my instructors. I did not listen. Note with me that most of these words give the impression that the course of sexual purity starts during our youth. That is very interesting. Children, do you listen to the voice of your parents when they set limits on the things that you can or cannot do? Adults, do you take God's word seriously to do this in your own life? Remember that we too have an instructor. We do have a teacher. His name is the spirit of God. The spirit of God. Do you consider his voice through the word and put it into practice? Adults. Here's a short word of advice. And this is going to be really short. Don't ever presume to be beyond the path to sexual sin. Don't ever presume to be beyond the path to sexual sin. Rather, always be attentive to God's word as your ever-present instructor. You will never outgrow your need of this. You will never, never outgrow it. Let me give you now some, some theological foundations for the fight against sexual sin. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's some theological foundations for fight, for fighting the good fight. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what is the first theological foundation for the fight against immorality? The will of God for us, the will of God for us. You may not be certain regarding many aspects of God's will for your life, you may not know what God's secret will holds for you tomorrow. I don't either. But this we know for certain. God's will, God's written will for you is that you become like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's will for you and I is our sexual purity. Because as I said at the beginning, few things can set you apart more clearly as children of God than what we do regarding our sexuality. As you struggle with sin, as you and I struggle with sin, remember God's firm, known, and established will for you, namely your purity. Second, consider, remember, the call to self-denial. The call to self-denial. Consider the second half of verse 3 and through verse 5. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. By the way, this is a command. 
This is a command that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. What is the, the second thing? The call to self-denial, a sure way to know when someone does not know God is when that person is ruled by the passions of lust. Not that he wrestles with lust, but that he's ruled by it. In a world obsessed with self-love, we, brothers and sisters, are called to self-denial. Out of love for God and neighbor, which is also our third foundation. Consider this, the core principle of love. Let's read verse 6. That no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Since the seventh commandment is summed up in the words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then adultery and any form of sexual immorality and deviancy are hateful. They are hateful. They are the opposite of love. It is quite interesting that Paul connects these two things, how we manage our bodies with not doing wrong to others. Why is this? Because as I said several weeks ago, you never sin outside of relationships. You never sin outside of relationships. Even the sins you commit in private sin is always relational because sin always hurts someone. Sexual immorality is ultimately failure to love. And finally, the final foundation is consider with me the faithfulness of Christ to his bride. The faithfulness of Christ to his bride. You will never, you will never find a greater model of true faithfulness and love than in the relationship between Christ and his church. Jesus will never leave her nor forsake her. Should Satan unleashed all his fury and should sinful men pour out all their wrath upon the church, Jesus will keep her. He will protect her. And certainly he will lead her home. Not no matter what happens with men here on earth or with the demons in the invisible realm, Jesus is the faithful husband. Therefore the church is guaranteed to see him in glory. So as we fight the good fight of the faith against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of lies, life, let us remember God's will for us, namely our sanctification that we abstain from sexual immorality. Let us also remember our call to self-denial. Our bodies belong to God. Your body belongs to God. Let us serve him with our bodies and let us not forget love and faithfulness and the faithfulness of Jesus. Let me give you a few practical words of counsel from Thomas Watson. Uh, he wrote on the Ten Commandments, and I want to bring some of his pastoral wisdom to you uh, hundreds of years later, because it is still very practical. The first word of counsel from Thomas Watson is this, protect your senses. As we fight the fight against sexual immorality in this world, protect your senses. What are we thinking primarily? Your eyes and your ears your eyes and your ears. We must realize, and please listen, if, especially if you're young, we must realize that our society is highly sexualized. It's highly sexualized. Uh, not only can TV shows and movies and commercials be explicit, but even music, even music. This reminds me of Paul's language when he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the what? The air, the air. 
That language is conveying a, a very powerful image, and it is this. Satan exercises great influence in the world. Satan is always and very effectively promoting evil, and he can and does accomplish the sexualization of society through in individuals and societies entirely through the eyes and the ears. Please consider, ponder, think carefully about your entertainment choices, especially I'm talking about the young people and the friends that surround you. Much of the evil perversion comes through influences, through entertainment and company. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Pretty simple, isn't it? Simple principle. Protect your senses. Second, oh, this one is controversial to so many people. Make much of modesty. Can I speak directly to the ladies? And uh, if you hate me for it, that's fine. Deal with it. Make much of modesty. Believe it or not, I have heard women who like to dress in provocative ways. And thankfully not in this church. Let me clarify that. Huh? But say that people, women will say something like this. Well, look, if the way I dress leads some men to look with lust, that's their problem. Not mine. Why should I change the way I dress for the sake of men who can't control themselves and what they do with their eyes? You know what? Part of me understands that argument. Yes, some men are looking for that. They love provocative dress and they enjoy it. And many men do lust with their eyes. On the other hand, however, I think you would agree with me that the drug dealer who deals out drugs is to be held responsible even if the actions of those buying it are not his direct responsibility. Right? We agree on that. Likewise, if you are a lady and you are dealing out sexual temptations by the way you dress, you also bear some of the responsibility and the guilt, even if someone doesn't buy from you. It's important. Three, pay attention to excess in your life. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that included in the sins prohibited by the seventh commandment, listen to this, are gluttony and drunkenness. Interesting. In the commandment about not committing adultery, they included the sin of gluttony and drunkenness. Why? I believe the answer is that any type of excess in life, whether in food or elsewhere, is normally an indicator of a more serious form of spiritual problem. I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine many years ago who confessed exactly that to me. He told me that every time he gave into some form of sexual sin in his life, other areas such as eating habits also became very chaotic. But the reversal is also true. When you begin to lose your discipline in one specific area of life, other areas can also suffer. Lacking self-control in food or drink can easily lead to lack of self-control in the sexual realm as well. So pay attention to that. Number uh, four. Correct? And this is all from Thomas Watson. Remember that. Don't underestimate the dangers of idleness. Being idle. When the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, 
what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Part of the answer is this, and I quote, diligent labor in our callings. What is the connection between sexual sin and idleness? It is this idleness makes you more prone to listen to temptation and follow it. Consider the example, the classical example of David. David committed adultery when, when he decided not to engage in his duty as king and go to war, war with his army. He was not diligent in his calling, as the catechism says. It was in that moment of idleness that Satan successfully tempted him and he fell. So look carefully then how you use your time. Number five, labor to get the fear of God into your hearts. Labor to get the fear of God into your hearts. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse six, we read that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Quoting someone else, Watson writes that holy fear is, and I quote, the doorkeeper of the soul. Holy fear is the doorkeeper of the soul. He also pointed out that it was the fear of the Lord that kept Joseph from committing adultery with another man's wife, which is clearly evidenced in the way he responded to the temptation when he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph was a fearful man, but he feared the right object. He feared God, not man. Number six, learn to take delight in the word of the Lord. Learn to take delight in the word of the Lord. Watson says this, and I quote, the reason why persons seek after unchaste sinful pleasures is because they have no better. He that has once tasted Christ in a promise, however, is ravished with delight, end quote. Then Watson pointed out the example of Job and how he made the statement regarding the word of God. I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my portion of food. And then Watson says this commitment to God's word led Job to ultimately say, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So the bottom line is this, take delight in God's word and sin will become less attractive. And I have one more, and this one is from me. This one is from me. Watson had many, many more. I can guarantee you that, but uh, I'm cutting it uh, short. I have one more, and this is from me. Beware of religious hypocrisy in your life. Beware of religious hypocrisy in your life. Please note that I am not using the word hypocrisy as we normally think of that word. When we hear the word hypocrisy, we normally associate it with big glaring sins or inconsistencies in people who claim to be Christians. And yes, it does apply to that. But this time I'm using this word in a less obvious way. And it all has to do with pondering the path of life. I read a, an article on the theology of Jonathan Edwards in which the following observation was made in Edwards time. The article affirmed and in particular in Edwards theology, the word hypocrisy 
did not always refer to blatant sins, but to subtle instances, instances of religious self-delusion. Subtle instances of religious self-delusion. Blatant sins take place when we stop paying attention to subtle instances of religious self-delusion in our own lives. Brothers and sisters, as I said before, every step counts. And let me finish with a brief warning, a brief warning. In times of chaos and confusion and moral decay, be mindful of the dangers of spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. We return to where we began. Brothers and sisters, we must constantly remind ourselves that we serve only one God. Only one God. And this one God is our one hope. And this one hope is the one certainty we possess in this world. In other words, beware of the ever-present ability we all possess to make idols out of everything. We can make idols of our prosperity. We can make idols of our comfort. We can make idols of our health. We can make idols of our jobs, our politics, our entertainment, etc. And in doing so, we commit spiritual adultery against the only true and living God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the door into all other kinds of sins. So let me just remind you, don't think that there are any other hopes out there for you. There's only one God, one savior and one spirit. He is your only hope. Don't lose sight of him. Don't run to other cisterns as though they can provide you with water. Only Christ Jesus is the living water. And in these times of many unanswered questions, don't give into fear, but fear God alone. And in these times of division, don't give into anger, but be zealous for the truth. And in these times of uncertainty, don't give into hopelessness, but hope in God and his word. God cannot be moved. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His promises are true. And whether we are rich or poor, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. So look to him alone. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder from your word of the dangers of adultery. And we know that we are looking in the face of uh, much, much adultery taking place, uh, how sexual sin is rampant. And we understand the, the fierce nature of this battle. We are not unaware that this is truly a, a costly battle for many. And so, Father, we pray and we 
plead with you that you will be merciful to us. That through and by your spirit, you will help us to fight the good fight. For I know that there might be some in this room who are seeing the, the fierce nature of this battle in their own lives. Father, help us to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and to fight the good fight as those who have been forgiven and given a new life. And Father, I do pray for those who may be walking in self-delusion, self-deception. Father, I pray that you will bring them out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. For as the Bible reminded us today, you have been saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, out of all kinds of sins, and you have given them a new life. So thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Jesus. And I pray that you will take what has been spoken and that you will apply it to our hearts. And we pray all these things in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus, your son. Amen.